The following sermon is brought to you by ThePreachersVault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. When we think about serving God and living lives that are pleasing to Him, we know the Bible emphasizes faith. We think about passages in the Bible where we're told that we must live by faith. The just shall live by faith. And statements like that are common throughout Scripture. We see passages like uh, Hebrews chapter 11, where we're told that without faith it is impossible to please Him. And we're told about how all of these people that are listed in that great chapter did what they did in their lives by faith. We know that faith is of very great importance as we seek to live a life that brings glory and honor to God. We must be people of faith. But now when we talk about faith, we sometimes tend to look at it in one of two different ways. We might talk about faith in the sense of believing. Belief certainly is one aspect of faith that we must emphasize. We hear the message of the gospel, we examine the evidence that's presented, and we determine whether or not that evidence that's presented to us is sufficient to produce a belief in us, and we choose whether to believe it or not. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10:17 tells us, and describes that aspect of looking at the Scriptures, looking at the Word of God to see whether what it says is worthy of my accepting it. And, of course, the Bible does present adequate evidence for us to believe. Then on the other side of the coin, sometimes when we talk about faith, we talk about what faith moves us to do and how that faith without this, this action is incomplete. And James 2, verses 14 through 26 in particular, comes to mind when we think about this because there James makes that very clear statement that faith without works is dead. And he very forcefully sets forth the position that if a person has faith, then that faith will demonstrate itself by moving him to action, the action of obeying the commands that God gives to us. And so when we talk about faith, we often look at it in these two ways. We say on the one hand that faith is what we believe. It is the, the act of believing. But then on the other hand, that belief has to lead us to action in order for faith to be complete and to be a living, thriving faith. But there's another aspect of faith that maybe we don't talk about as much. I know I haven't always talked about it as much. But it is also an important aspect of faith. And that is trust. When we talk about believing God, we're talking about trust. Now, don't, I'm not saying believing in God. When I say I believe in God, I'm telling you that I believe God exists. But when I say I believe God, that's saying something else. When Paul was traveling to Rome on that ship as a prisoner and they were in the midst of that terrible storm that had thrown them off course and was threatening to sink the ship, God sent a message to Paul and told him that all of those souls on board that ship that night, uh, on that, that voyage, would be spared. And Paul 
relayed this message to those men, and in the course of that, he told them that God had revealed this to them, and then to him, and then he said, I believe God. In other words, I trust what God said. As we think about faith, then, we see that trust is an important aspect of faith, just as much as believing and just as much as obeying. Think about how the Bible describes God. How that it tells us that God is faithful. God is faithful. In other words, He's trustworthy. How that it goes out of its way to tell us that God cannot lie. That He is a God of truthfulness. All of these things are designed to undergird our trust. As we think about the trust that we place in God... That emphasizes, it calls to my mind the fact that God has made many promises to us. Is he worthy of our trust? Well, there's a statement that's made about Jesus. And when we look at Matthew 26, we find that Mary came to Jesus' tomb. Uh, Mary, together with uh, another Mary, came to Jesus' tomb where his body had been laid, and this was on the first day of the week. And it says, Behold, this is Matthew 28, verse 2, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing is white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen as he said. He is risen as he said. Look at that little phrase there, as he said. The angel directed the attention of these women back to the promise of Jesus. And he he told them, he is risen as he said. What he was doing was emphasizing to them the fact that if Jesus said something, you can trust it. And that's what I'd like uh, like us to focus on for a little while today. What has the Lord said to us that we can trust? As we think about our faith in him, we must understand that that faith involves our complete trust of what the Lord has said. And there are a number of promises that we can consider that Jesus has made to us that we can trust because he said it. And he is worthy and deserving of our trust. First of all, look with me in Matthew 11. Verses 28 through 30 is sometimes called the great invitation. The Lord speaking here said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's the promise. I will give you rest. And we can trust that promise because Jesus said it. He will give us rest just as he said. Now, as we think about this rest that Jesus has promised to us, what is it that we are to be resting from? Well, I believe most everyone, especially those who are familiar with the Scripture, would agree and understand that Jesus is speaking about rest from the burden of sin. And we know that sin is the greatest burden that anyone ever bears. Some may not acknowledge that fact, but it still is true. 
we think about all of the things that sin does. Sin brings condemnation. We can think about a passage like Ezekiel 18, verse 20, where the prophet said, Therefore the Lord, the soul who sins, shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father. The father shall not bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon him. You see, everyone answers to God for his own actions. And when we sin, we deserve to die. We've brought condemnation upon ourselves. Sin brings condemnation. In the second place, sin also brings shame. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? Before they sinned, the Bible says they were naked and not ashamed of it. But after they ate, they developed a sense of shame that showed itself in the fact that they recognized their nakedness and wanted to cover their bodies. Shame comes as a result of sin. Over in the book of Ezra, we find that that uh, Ezra here utters a prayer to God in which he admits the sinful condition of his people and on behalf of them owns up to all of the things that they had done that were contrary to the will of God. And notice what he says. Ezra 9 verse 6, And I said, O my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God, For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Shame. Sin brings condemnation, and sin brings shame. Sin also brings trouble. So many people in the world today are looking for peace, and the reason they need peace is that they have sin. Sin brings the troubling of the soul. Sin brings the troubling of the mind. Sin brings that understanding that things are not right with us and things are not well with us. Isaiah spoke to this in Isaiah 57, verses 20 and 21. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Now, when we think about these things that sin brings, condemnation, shame, trouble, And then we go back to that promise of Jesus back there in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's the promise. And Jesus is trustworthy. He said it, and we can trust that he will keep that promise. Now, as we think about Jesus' promise to give us rest from the burden of sin, we need to understand something. He isn't promising this rest unconditionally. If we really trust Jesus, we need to trust everything that he said. Notice, as we read on the rest of that passage where we started a few minutes ago, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If we want to receive rest, we have to come to Jesus. He's not going to come and force us against our will. It's a choice that we make. We choose to approach Him. We choose to learn about Him. We choose to to submit ourselves to Him. God created us with that ability, with a free will to exercise in coming to Him to receive that which He gives. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. This is submission. And so we 
we voluntarily choose to come to Him. And then when we come to Him, we choose to submit to Him. Take my yoke upon you. Come under my control. Submit to my authority. Now, He's the Savior. He's the one who can give rest to us. We've brought the shame and the the condemnation and the trouble upon ourselves by choosing to sin. But Jesus is the one who's promising to remove that from us. But we have to submit to His will. Come to me, take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, He said. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We learn from Him. Submitting to Jesus means that we're going to have to learn all of what He said and agree to do that. He's promised to give us rest, and He's shown us the way that we can receive it. The question is, do we trust His promise? Well, we can take His word. We can take Him at His word. We can believe Him and trust Him. And just as He said, we can receive that rest that Jesus promises to us. Another promise that Jesus makes to us is this. He promises to provide for our physical needs. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 6 in his Sermon on the Mount. The Lord knows that as we live life here on earth, there are things that concern us about physical life. Material needs are real needs, and yet he does not want us to allow those needs to get out of control in our lives as far as the way we look at them. And he does not want us to begin to to worry about those things. And so he taught us there in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 25, that we should not worry about those kinds of things. He said, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you shall eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Don't worry about the physical needs of life. There's a promise that the Lord made to us. And Jesus tells us about this promise here. But as we think about that promise, and as he leads up to the promise that he's making, he emphasizes the fact that if we do allow ourselves to be overcome with worry about the material needs of life, then we're not living the way he wants us to live. You see, when we allow this to rule our lives, we're emphasizing the wrong things in life. And this just is not reasonable for the child of God. Listen to what Jesus said at verse 26. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet, I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Can we look at nature and see that God takes care of the things in the world that He has made? Uh, Skipped over verse 26, which is where, where I really intended to start, but Jesus there said, Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Now here's the kicker. Are you not of more value than they? That shows us why it's not reasonable for us. As human beings, and in particular as children of God, as the crown jewel of God's creation, to worry about what we're going to eat and what we're going to wear and the shelter that we have and so on. Because Jesus says the lesser things in God's creation are of great value to Him, so much so that He cares for them and provides for them. 
But since you're of greater value than they are, doesn't it stand to reason that God will take care of you? That God will provide for your needs? You see, when we, children of God, allow ourselves to be overcome with these kinds of worries, we're not being reasonable. In addition to that, what does worry accomplish? In verse 27, Jesus said, Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? Can you just suddenly make yourself grow taller as a result of worrying? Worry doesn't accomplish anything, does it? And so we put our confidence in God. We put our confidence in the promise that Jesus has made. And here's that promise. Verse 33, But seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Uh, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. All these things He's been talking about, the material needs that we have. Now, there is the promise of Jesus. The promise to provide for our physical needs. Now, he said it, and we can take him at his word. We can trust what he said. But the key is we have to do what he said in connection with that promise, and that is to put the kingdom of God first. If we order our priorities correctly in life and do that with a spiritual outlook on things, with an eye toward eternity, then we'll begin to see that the material things in life are of much less significance than the spiritual things are. And the more we seek to know God and the more we seek to please God and glorify Him and honor Him and serve Him, the more confident we are of everything that He's promised. And one of the things He's promised is to take care of our physical needs. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's notice a third promise that the Lord has made to us. And because the Lord said it, we can trust it. He said in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. The promise that we will never face a temptation that we cannot overcome. Now, we all face temptation. We're not going to be able to avoid it. But what we need to do is to recognize how dangerous it is in our lives. The Bible describes the devil as our adversary. And it compares him to a roaring lion who is stalking us. 1 Peter 5, verse 8. I've never been anywhere in Africa where lions roam in the wild. But I can tell you this, if I ever have opportunity to go to some place like that, and to be out in the bush where lions are roaming in the wild, I'm not going to venture out at night when those lions are hunting. I'm not going to put myself in that kind of position. I'm going to stay someplace where it's safe. Even though I've never had personal experience with a lion, I know enough about them to know that they are dangerous. Now, the Bible uses a lion for a reason. Lions are powerful, they're dangerous, and they stalk their prey. And this is the image that it uses, uh, that God uses to show us something about our adversary, the devil. And what he uses against us is temptation. James tells us that everyone is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And he tells us that this desire, this lust, when it reaches full age, 
produces sin, and or rather, this lust produces sin, and then sin, when it reaches full age, produces death. My soul is on the line when it comes to temptation. And temptation is nothing to scoff at. When Jesus was taken by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, he seems not to have wanted to go. The way Mark records it, it says the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Jesus knew how dangerous temptation was, and he did not want to have to to face it. But he did for you and me. Now, we face temptation. How are we going to deal with that temptation? One way that we might deal with it is by looking at it and just giving up and saying, you know, there's nothing that I can do. This temptation is just too strong for me to deal with. I just don't have what it takes to overcome. If you are ever faced with that kind of thought as you consider the temptations you're dealing with in your life, you need to go back and listen to the words of our Lord where he promised us that there is no temptation that is greater than our ability to overcome. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, and let's notice what Paul says about this principle. Notice, first of all, he says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. We all face temptation. Please do not ever think that God has singled you out, or that the devil even has singled you out, and is exposing you to temptation that is unlike anything else, anything anybody else has ever faced. Because that simply is not true. We all face temptation, and we all have to deal with it. Temptation is common to man. You're not being singled out. Nobody's picking on you more than he's picking on anybody else. The devil wants to destroy us all, and thus the devil tempts every one of us. The sooner we realize that, the sooner we can get rid of that excuse that says, oh, nobody's ever had it as bad as I have it. Notice the second thing in this passage. No temptation has taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to bear. Now, this does not mean that God has some limit in mind for us and that he's just going to keep piling on and piling on and piling on just till he gets to the limit and then stop barely short of it. Now, that's not how we need to understand this passage. What we need to understand is that Paul is telling us every temptation you face is a temptation you can overcome. So don't look at your temptations and say, well, that's more than I can bear, because that's just not true. If you're facing a temptation, you can overcome it. The third thing that Paul promised us there on behalf of the Lord is that God will make a way, <coughs> excuse me, a way of escape so that we can bear those temptations. If you look hard enough, and if you're diligent enough to want to badly enough, that is to overcome this temptation, you can find a way to do it. God's promised that. There's a way out of every temptation you face. When we think about the promise of God that we can overcome every temptation, we need to rely on that promise and trust it because that's what the Lord said. Quickly, let's look at one more promise that the Lord has given to us, and that's the promise of eternal life. In Revelation chapter 2, we read about the Lord's letter that He sent to the church in Smyrna, encouraging them in the face of the persecution that they they were about to have to endure. And he told that church 
that if they would be faithful until death, he would give them the crown of life. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, the Lord said that. The Lord promised that. As we think about life here on earth, we need to understand that the time that transpires between our birth and our death is not the sum total of our existence. In fact, in comparison, it is a very minor portion of our total existence. You see, God gave us a spirit that lives on after the body dies. One of these days, when Jesus comes again, he's going to raise all of the dead. And then our spirits are going to be reunited with a body that has been changed and suited for eternity. And if we've been faithful, then we can expect a home in heaven with the Lord. We don't have to worry about living forever here on earth. In fact, the Lord told us not to think that way. The bodies that we inhabit now are not designed to live forever. The older we all get, the more we realize that fact. The more often we visit the funeral home or the cemetery, the more clear that fact becomes. Life on earth is not the end. It is not the goal. But rather, a home in heaven with our Savior is. Can I have that home? Absolutely. And so can you. Because, you see, the Lord promised it. The condition of that promise is be faithful. Be faithful. Live by the Lord's will. Submit yourself to His Word. Put Him first in your life. Do those things that He wants you to do. And do that every day. Do that to the best of your ability. No, you don't have to be flawless. Because we all have problems. We all have weaknesses. But you do have to give it your best. Be faithful until death. Now, remember, the Lord made this promise to people who were about to have their lives put on the line for their faith. Even if it meant dying for the Lord, they were to be faithful. And if they would, He would give them the crown of life. The Lord is trustworthy. And when He makes a promise, He will keep it. We can trust that. And as we think about living by faith, yes, we need to understand that that means that we live with a belief in all that God has said, that it is in fact true. And we need to understand that that faith must move us to submit to the Lord's will and to live a life of obedience to Him. But when we think about that belief on the one hand and that obedience on the other, really right there in the middle comes trust. I trust God because of what I believe about Him. And because I trust His promises, I'll do what He said for me to do. He said it. And just as He said... One of these days, He's going to keep every single promise. And throughout our lives, we can rely on that fact and live by faith for our Lord.